I hate double-minded men, but I love your law. You are my refuge and my shield. I have put my hope in your word. Away, away from me, you evil that I may keep the commands of my God. Sustain me according to your promise, and I will live. Do not let my hopes be dashed. Uphold me, and I will be delivered. I will always have regard for your decrees. You reject all who stray from your decrees, for the deceitfulness is in vain. Their defeat is in this day. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your statutes. My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your law. Good stuff there. Is that working? It's working. Okay. At least That's one is. Again, it, uh, Corey Ten Boone wouldn't like that. Corey, <laughs> nope, she wouldn't. You are my hiding place. You are my hiding place. That's right. All right, let's see here. We got some prayer requests today. I didn't write them all down. I've been busy trying to take care of a person that's visiting. And uh, okay, uh, five-year-old Ethan has leukemia. We want to have him in prayer. And my friend Sean lives uh, in Lehigh Acres. He's uh, says his friend Jeff needs Jesus, and his little sister needs chemo for cancer. And then Beth Colvin had an MRI today to find out what's going on with her. So we're hoping for a favorable, positive response from Are that. that yes. Yeah. So we're hoping that she'll be okay. And she didn't give me any update on Jack, but Jack had a problem last week too. So keep oh, them gee. in prayer. Yeah. And then uh, friend, we have a mutual friend, some of us, and I might as well mention it because there might be somebody online that knows. He's looking for a pastor position, and I don't think he cares where. I mean, he'll move. You know, he's, you know who I'm talking about is Will, and he, uh, he, uh, boy, he's very sound theologically, great Bible preacher, and uh, he's just looking for a pastor position. So if you know a church that needs a, uh, a uh, preacher, please let him know. And then Darla, I talked to her today. She's still having all kinds of things going on, so we want to keep Darla in prayer. But she sounded positive. Despite oh, despite all the problems. And then just before I walked out of the house today, Hedico said, I'm really feeling bad. So I know she got what I gave her what I had. And I got to tell you, it was seven days. Of just, it was Thursday night after the Bible study. I got home and about 1130, I woke up and I felt miserable. And it went all the way up until I had to do a wedding on Tuesday night. And oh. I thought, I'm not going to be able to do that. And I was just, just well enough to go and do it. And so oh. thank the Lord because it was... It was the nicest wedding I've ever done, I gotta tell you. It was very short, but it was right on Siesta Beach. You know, I married a lot of my friends and good weddings, nice people, but this was just simple and beautiful. Really, really wonderful wedding. Anyway, so we made through there, but I'm still feeling kind of crummy. But Hidako has it now, so we'll pray for her. And then uh, we have, everybody, please pay attention if you live in Sarasota. We have a friend, he's been visiting me now for uh, a week. And he's hoping within the next two weeks that we can find him a place to live. If you know somebody that has a room, that's all he needs is a room. Good Christian he's hoping for, but he'll, you know, he, he just needs to, he came all the way from Arizona uh, to, uh, you know, he, he doesn't like to fly. So he took the train across America to get here. And um, anyway, uh, here he is. And, and he's a guy that has been really good to this ministry for the past five, six, seven years, I think from him constantly and we've just become good friends but he needs a place so if anybody in Sarasota has a room to rent please let me know um oh brian i don't know i i i will have to ask him i have no idea if he will but i'm glad you brought that up 
And then um, let's see here, friend needs room. To, okay, last one, Jeff and Barb Johnson, visiting from Minnesota, from Minneapolis. So we want to welcome you guys and uh, they'll be here for part of Sunday. I don't think they're gonna make it to the end of the service because they've got to fly out of uh, Fort Myers. And so, uh, and now that I've talked so long, we're gonna skip this. I hate to do it because I keep doing it, but we're already eight minutes into the service. So let's have a prayer and get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for providing the needs of your people and taking care of them. And uh, we, we have all these prayer requests. Some are physical needs, some are needs for just life accommodations and uh, all the other things that are uh, could possibly take our hearts away from you. We would ask that you would fill those so that we can just rejoice in you and also praise you. But Lord, if we don't have the good things that we need in this life, as long as you give us strength to praise you, that'll be sufficient because you're worthy of that above all else. And Lord, we are here in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians again. We would pray that it would be handled properly and that it would be uh, edifying to the people that listen. But at the same time, Lord, if there's anything that is not right, that they would uh, be wise enough to check each thing after the class and make sure that the doctrine is set and uh, that there isn't something that uh, was said that is wrong. We want people to be properly trained and that's only going to come through uh, people being willing to check their theology and not just believe what they hear at face value. So, Lord, we pray this, that your people will be built up in you. We pray this, that they will be healed, that they will find the things that they need for moving forward in this life. And we pray that your word will be glorified and magnified among God's people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, and then a couple people just walked in, and who was it? Um, Tom back there. He doesn't really seem to mind as much as the rest of us, but I got the air on much later than normal today. I apologize. I know it's warm in here, but it is cooling down. So, Okay, it's dropped to 80. We've got a, almost a freeze now in here. I'm sorry. I always come a few hours early, and uh, when I'm done with all of the work, I sleep in the back room. It's my one chance to be alone in the whole week. So, But today that did not happen because I've been taking people that are visiting around here and there. See, I'm blaming him. He's sitting here, what? What? Not me. Okay, so we're in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, verse 25. I think it's the last verse. Oh, wait, one more thing. We have Usama Dokdok coming again twice. He's going to come on a Sunday, the 16th of June, and he'll be here on that Thursday night, the 20th of June, which is my dad's birthday. So we got him coming. Uh, get ready for that, and then I'll announce that again and again before uh, we uh, actually have him. But that's good news because he's a great speaker and he's always got something that's interesting. So good stuff there. And plus it saves me a little bit of work on the prophecy updates. You know, I still do it anyway because if he doesn't show up, I got an update to do. So it doesn't save me anything. But anyway, um, and it kind of frustrates me because if I do do all that work, there's always something good. And then it's passe the next week and it's like, ah, oh, well, whatever. 925, 1 Corinthians 9. I'll, I'll go back uh, yeah, please do. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. 25. Anyone who competes in the games goes into strict training to do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Forever. Now, I said it's the last verse, and it's not. It was the last paragraph. I knew I knew something was up. Um, oh, and before I give my analysis on 1 Corinthians 9.25, I will say that we finished the book of Hebrews after 303 days this morning. And so if you want to follow along with the book of James, you can do it on Facebook. All you have to do is send me an email, and I'll give you the link to the two places where it's posted on Facebook. 
or you can go to the Superior Word website every single day. It's posted right under today. And if you miss a day, you've got to go find it in the website. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. So there's a search bar. You just type in what you want and it'll come up. But um, James starts tomorrow. Good book. Very misunderstood. Okay. It starts for you or us? It starts for us. Okay. Yeah. Okay. It, Hebrews ended today. I've already got 12 commentaries of James done, but tomorrow is James an introduction. And then the first verse will be the day after tomorrow. So you didn't do your reading. You might as well leave right now then. You, this is the second thing. You, we'll do two tomorrow. Oh, okay. You'll do two tomorrow. Okay. Okay. Here we are. Nine, nine twenty-five. I'm going to read that verse again. It is a little different, not much. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Wonderful stuff. In his previous verse, Paul wrote that there are many runners in a race, but only one would receive the crown. He then implored those in Corinth to run their course in Christ in the same manner, setting aside all encumbrances and looking toward the prize, which is Jesus. Looking towards the Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Okay, so the prize. Now, still using the Isthmian games as his metaphor, he tells them that everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Ancient writers note that those who were involved in the preparation for these games required 10 full months of training, right up to the moment before the games began. Much of their training involved not only physical conditioning, but dietary restrictions as well. The thoughts of the two commentators from those uh, times read from Epictetus, thou must be orderly, living on spare food, abstain from confections, make a point of exercising at the appointed time, in heat and in cold, nor drink cold water nor wine at hazard. And then Horace says, the youth would win in the race hath borne and doth much, done much. He hath sweat and been cold, he hath abstained from love and wine. So that's a couple of the ancient writers of what the guys went through in the Isthmian games. Such extreme conditioning would have been known to the people of Corinth. And so Paul, without extra comment, states this in the plain form that the athlete was temperate in all things. In this simple expression, he was intimating to those at Corinth and thus to us that we have an obligation to be temperate as well. We cannot expect to live in an antimonian existence and feel that we are properly conditioning ourselves as we strive towards the price. Does anybody remember what that means, antimonian? I said no it last law. week. Yeah, no law. It's lawless. In, a, in, in other words, we, uh, we're we not under law, but we're under grace. And so some people take that to an extreme, and they say that we can do anything we want. Okay? And that is not what the Bible teaches. Yes? It's, it's, it's so funny. I just heard, talking about the race, prepared. The two fastest men in the world, what do they eat right now? 16 bananas. 16 bananas a day. That sounds pretty gross to me, but I'm not a banana guy. I'll eat one once a, once a year maybe, but that's about it. I'm not a big banana guy. Yeah, I mean, I like them. I just, yeah, no, but 16 bananas a day. Okay, well, that, that would fit right in here with that. That's for sure. Um, let's see here. Antimonian. Okay, so yeah, you can't live an antimonian existence and feel that you're striving towards the prize. We have a moral base, which we are to uphold. That is why we studied the epistles, because Paul gives us many commandments, many exhortations, and they deal with all kinds of things that people that say we're not under law, 
and they believe that that gives them license. And so they can go out and do anything they want. You know, if I make a comment about pot being uh, legalized in all these states and how it is not appropriate, inevitably Christians will email me and they'll say, you don't know what you're talking about. And they just, they'll, they'll just belittle you because they live in antimonian existence. They think that that gives them license to do that. Now, yeah, absolutely. You know, whatever. They do whatever you want. I, that's fine. People can do whatever they want because we are not being imputed sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. Okay. However, it, what's that? Yeah, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we're asked to live in a certain way. Now, I will be the first person to say that if they legalize marijuana and if somebody has a physical condition that can be alleviated by that Hey, that's a completely different thing, but that is not the intent of the drug laws being lessened in America right now by any stretch of the imagination. They're, they're doing it for the same reason that they're doing the abortion issue and for the same reason that they're tearing down the uh, immigration laws and everything else is to bring chaos to society, not structure and order and harmony. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, so we have uh, freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin, rather it is freedom from sin. Paul continues with this thought, noting that those who participated in these games, that those who part in these games conditioned, them, conditioned themselves in this manner in order to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Now think of the difference. The athlete in these games was striving for temporary notoriety and a crown that would literally fall apart in a very short amount of time. The leaves would fall off, the twigs would become brittle and eventually break. Insects could destroy it in a few hours, or any thief could carry it off and it would be gone. It was a temporary reminder of a temporary honor. All of that intense conditioning for something so ephemeral in nature. On the other hand, the crown that we are striving for is an eternal one. It will never fade. It will never be taken away. And it will never lose its luster. Paul asks us to consider this and to determine that we will strive even more rigorously for our crown than those of the Isthmian Games strived, simply because our reward is so much greater, infinitely greater, because it is eternal. I don't know if that's Sergio calling me or is somebody else. Got, no, it's not me. Okay. Um, I keep hearing one of the bing bing on an apple, and I thought maybe he was calling me. I apologize. Life application in this verse. And the preceding verse, he has made some notable contrasts that we should remember. The first is that of the earthly race, which was in hopes of earthly results in contrast to the spiritual race, which is in hopes of spiritual results. The second is that there was only one crown given in the earthly competition in contrast to the idea that all can obtain the crown in the spiritual race. And the third is that the crown in the earthly race is temporary and corruptible in contrast to the heavenly crown, which is incorruptible and eternal. In all ways, the end result of the spiritual race is superior. And because of this, our conditioning in this race should also be superior in all ways. We should strive to emulate Christ, to look to Christ, to want to live for Christ. And, uh, oh, having said that, I said that James starts tomorrow, the, uh, the epistle of James, and this is where these come from. I typed these up. The 1 Corinthians, I think, was 345 verses or something. Anyway, and so I do a verse a day. And whatever the verse is, we do a full evaluation of it. And so uh, if you want to follow along with these while we're doing the Bible studies, they are all online. First, you can get them individually at the Superior Word, page by page. Or 
after I finished, which is the first thing I did this morning after posting Hebrews um, uh, 1325, the very first thing I did was take the entire thing and put it on my wonderful one website. So if you want the entire commentary of Hebrews, it's right there. And some people can't copy from the web. You know, in other words, it comes out funny format. If you want it, I will email it to you. I've got all of the commentaries that I've done in the Bible on the uh, internet. And if somebody emails me, I send it to them. Somebody wanted what we did from Acts this afternoon. This lady, I got to tell you what, her name is Jean. I won't give any more information because there's a lot of genes out there. She is read and followed along with every single video the superior word has ever done and as she reads it she finds all of my typos because i'm the worst typist in the world and she's always sending it to me so all these things are being corrected she has now done everything as of today everything that we have done with the superior word every single thing and she's read it and sent me uh corrections on the ones that needed correction and so she said i saw the two x uh uh we only recorded the last two classes before we you know went into romans because we didn't have the recording of stuff before that but she watched those and she says do you have all the commentary from max i'd like to read it and so i sent it all to her if you want something email me and you will get it there's no charge there's it, it's free to the world but that's where these things come from is the daily commentary so uh, each book can take anywhere from 30 days up to a year and a half whatever but um okay so we're in 926 Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. There you go. Okay. In this verse, Paul sums up his thought concerning running, which he has referred to for the past two verses by saying, therefore. Because of what he stated, his concluding thought is that I run thus, not with uncertainty. In his run towards the prize, he had a positive end and goal. The word he uses for uncertainty is adilos a word used only here in the entire New Testament. It means something out of sight or obscure. For Paul, there was nothing obscure about his goal. He had marked, he had a marked determination which led directly to Christ. And Hebrews 12, two, I'm gonna read you one and two, but I've already quoted it once, but I'll read you the entire thing. This is how it says it there, Hebrews 12, I'm in Hebrews two. It always supposed to get into the right book if you're gonna read what you wanna read. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So you can see that that's why we went through... Uh, uh, Hebrews, and as I said many times, I am personally convinced that Hebrews was penned by Paul. There, there's just way too much information that uh, corresponds with his other epistles and also what Peter said in his epistle that leads you to the notion that Paul was the author. But there's a good reason why he was not listed as the author. It came with a cover sheet probably, or possibly somebody carried it and said this from Paul to be read to you. But the Lord didn't want his name on that epistle because it would have set a wall between any Jew that wanted to come to Christ and understanding the book of Hebrews. It would have set an immediate wall. And so uh, by not having his name on there, it made it possible for Jews that read that and understand the theology of the Old Testament to make the connection without having the obstruction of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles in the way. So uh, you just came in. I'm sorry, it's hot. The air is cooling down, but I got here late, so I apologize. Anyway, um, Hebrews 12, two is my favorite verse in the Bible. 
having said that, there was nothing that would hinder his race to the finish line. And to him, that finish line was never out of his sight. After having conveyed this thought, he then suddenly switches from running to another metaphor, that of boxing. Not only was his race unhindered and with an end that was perfectly evident, but his attitude in reaching that point was also comparable to the boxer. Again, in this one verse, he uses another word found only here in the New Testament, which is paiteuo. It specifically refers to a boxer, one who uses fists in a match. As he ran, so he fought. In his battle, he was one who fought, not as one who beats the air. Before boxing matches then, and still in boxing matches today, boxers will punch the air in front of them as they warm up. It loosens the muscles, and it gives an advanced demonstration of the fight ahead. When they do this, they don't arbitrarily let their arms flail about. Rather, they are focused and punch as if there was already a face being hit. They also remain focused as if punches were expected to come back at them. Once the fight actually began, they would use the same marked determination to ensure that every punch landed on its intended target. If the target is missed, it becomes too late to control the arm and additional energy is lost as the body moves with the arms. The boxer becomes unbalanced and susceptible to a good pounding from his own opponent. Additionally, the tendons and muscles can be more easily strained during such a miss. And for this reason, beating the air rather than the body of the opponent was a big mistake, a mistake which could end in defeat. Paul determined that any attack by Satan would be deflected and that in his prowess as a fighter, it was to fight back with exacting blows, not just in defense, but in an offensive manner. He prepared himself for the battle and he always determined to be ready and on target with his actions. In life application, Paul likens our time in Christ to a race and also to a boxing match. Both of these are extremely strenuous activities, and the implication is that we need to be prepared both mentally and physically in order to meet challenges we face. The surest way to be ready is through three distinct avenues. One is prayer, two is fellowship with other Christians, and three is reading and studying and adhering to the Word of God. If we do these, we will be like Paul as we strive forward. We will be prepared for the race and for the battle. I was talking to somebody yesterday that I'm not a big fan of, but he started going on about uh, uh, Israel not being God's people and the Israel today and blah, 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 blah. And he, he knew every conspiracy website out there. He could quote everything about chemtrails. He could quote everything about flat earth, but he knows nothing about this word. And if you don't know this word, you have no idea what God says about the Jewish people. Yes, he calls them the synagogue of Satan, right in the book of Revelation. And at this point in history, they are. That is what they are. They are of their father, the devil. Jesus said it. If you're not in Christ, you are in the devil. 1 John 3, 8. Those are the only two choices. That does not mean that he is not returning to Israel. And that does not mean that he is not bringing Israel to their point of coming to him at this point. Guess what's Sunday sermon, exactly what we'll be talking about. What is it? Numbers 21, 10 through 20. Filling wineskins. Okay, well, you'll find out about it when we get there. But I'm telling you what, the Lord is not done with his people. And he has shown us in advance the progression that they will go through in order to be right with him. We've seen it all the way from Numbers 14, when they refused to go into Canaan. 
and all the way through until where we are right now, it's all showing us a snapshot of redemptive history. So there you go. Great stuff coming. All right. So read your Bible, know your Bible. Don't argue with people that don't know their Bible because they already know way more than you do. Everybody is a specialist in theology. That's one thing that I know. Everybody is a specialist in theology, and most people have never read their Bible one time. So there you go. Um, so if we do these things, the things I just mentioned, prayer, fellowship, and knowing our Bible, we will be like Paul as we strive forward. We will be prepared for the race and for the battle. Okay? Know your Bible. 927. This is it. No. I Last one my, of the chapter. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Very good. You read that like a champ with my interruptions and everything else. <laughs> you know what? I just had to. I'm sorry. He and I love to just pick on each other. Sometimes you get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> you just get used to it. To finish chapter 9, Paul shows the severity of the conditioning he placed upon himself in order to obtain his crown. He had just said that he fought not as one who beats the air, using a boxing metaphor. He showed that like a boxer, he made every punch count in his training and in his fight to share the gospel. Now he continues on with the boxing metaphor. The word translated as discipline is the Greek word hupopiazo. It means to strike under the eye and translated at, and thus to bruise like a black eye. It is from the Greek word hupopion, which is the part of the face under the eyes. It's only used one other time in scripture, which is in Luke 18, 5. There it is speaking of the widow who troubles the judge as she continuously comes before him seeking justice. Paul strove in the same manner as he did, continuously bringing his body into subjection. Here he uses an interesting term, uh, lagogo, which means to bring into captivity or slavery as one would do when leading the losers of a battle off the battlefield. In this then, Paul is saying that his mortal flesh was the continuous loser in his battle. I wish I could say that all the time. I mean, you just, the flesh, you're always, always warring against it in something, in your mind, in your body, and whatever. You get hungry and you get angry. My daughter calls it getting hangry. I'm telling you, it just, the flesh is, and Paul was always trying to defeat the flesh. All right, it was the flesh against the spirit, and the spirit in him was always the victor. All, it, well, I'd say that always in the sense that he was an apostle and he was very close to Christ, but he was a fallible guy too. Not in his writings here, but we know that he and Barnabas had a, a paroxysm, a fight, and it, that means it's a very severe one, and they never spoke again, at least as is relayed in scripture. There's no record of them ever reconciling. So when I say this about Paul, I'm not trying to elevate him to some unhealthy level, but in his attitude, this is what he presented. All right, so he's always the victor. All of the worldly lusts and temptations were brought into this state of captivity. As he says, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I was just reading a thing that's made the news now finally today. And it's, I won't give the person's name. Everybody here either has read the story or they will read the story and they know the name. There's no point in bringing it out loud, but it's a person that is very revered in America. He was a, uh, a minister and come to find out some of the things that he did in his life were beyond perverse. Okay. And uh, so there's, like I said, there's no point in bringing it up here. 
you're, you're going to read about it or you are going to eventually hear about it, okay? It's, it's coming out and it's somebody that uh, there's, there's just no point in getting into that type of a thing today. But as Paul says, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. And here we have somebody that was uh, considered one of the great preachers of all of our history in America and for particular reasons. And now we find out that he very well may be disqualified. We don't know. I, you know, we can say, oh, that guy's saved. He's a preacher. That means nothing. Right. I mean, when you start guessing people's salvation, you're probably making the wrong guess. I mean, he, there are some people you just know. You just know. They exude Christ. They live for Christ. They weep over the lost. I mean, some people you just know, but some people you think, oh, that's a great man of God. And then five minutes later, you find out that he's been sleeping with the whole congregation or something. We don't want to idolize people here. That is not, not what we do. But this is what Paul is saying. You need to watch. You need to be on guard there. Harry was telling others to remain pure and undefiled in their walk. It would be hypocritical to act differently than how he preached. What a sad thing to stand at the judgment seat of Christ, or maybe not even get to the judgment seat of Christ, if you think about it, next to those he had preached to, and have them receive greater rewards than he because of failing to bring his passions into subjection. In order to avoid this, he lived as he preached. The term he uses for disqualified is adokimos. It comes from the idea of bad metals. It indicates the metals that are put into the fire and fail the test for purity. They are scraped off and they are removed. They are worthless slag and thus they're cast away. Paul was determined to be pure and undefiled when he stood before the Lord. And so he disciplined himself so that this would come about. Life application, Paul's words here at the end of chapter 9 show that he struggled with the flesh like anyone else. If he had to discipline himself against it, it is an indication that the discipline was needed. If we have a problem with weight, we won't lose the weight without working out our diet. If we have a problem with an addiction, it will not solve itself. Instead, it will need to be brought under control. This is the way it was for all things contrary to the word of God. We can either slip comfortably into rebellion or we can fight against it. Let us be found approved by adhering to the word and standing fast in the battle which rages within us. Lord, the flesh certainly does put up a fight. I cannot deny that it wages war against me. I struggle back at each punch and bite and focus my eyes so that you are all I see. Lord, help me in this raging battle. Keep me close to you and be, to be obedient to your word as the snake hisses and his tail does rattle. Be with me and protect me. This I pray, my Lord. You went to the cross to win this war for us, and so I know that you will be with me, my precious Lord Jesus. 10-1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, that they all passed through the sea. In the beginning of chapter 10, Paul will refer back to the issue of chapter 8, food sacrifice to idols. We went through that for verse after verse after verse. He's going to go back to that again. All right. So, however, he is also building upon the thought which he has been discussing at the end of chapter 9 that of striving for a crown and the conditioning that it required. And so he begins with moreover. Many translators state but or for rather than moreover to either show a contrast to his previous words or a continuation of the argument rather than a new direction. 
Whichever is intended, he is addressing brethren. The words are given to believers in the church for their edification and for their growth. To these brethren, he gives a phrase which is intended to open their minds to a passage of scripture in a new way. He says, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. As he continues, it will become apparent that they are already aware of the Exodus story. What Paul is making known to them is that there is a spiritual application to the story which is applicable to them and thus to us as believers. He will repeat the word all five times in the first four verses to highlight that what occurred included the entire body involved in the Exodus. Despite that, however, it wasn't received by all in the same way. Remember as we were going through the book of Hebrews and we were talking about some of the issues that have been way, way, way debated over for the past 2,000 years. And they say, well, you can lose your salvation because of this. And the other people say, well, you can't. And I know that's not true, but this is a difficult verse, et cetera, et cetera. And the answer is very simple. It's because he is writing to who in the book of Hebrews? There's not just a individual entity in the Hebrew society. There is a collective entity. You have the collective, which will be saved collectively. You have individuals that will be saved or cast off. And when you get to those difficult verses and you understand that Paul is writing about a collective whole, he's not talking about individual loss of salvation. And that's why people misunderstand those verses. So when you get to Hebrews and you read the commentary or when we get to it and it's uh, 2019, it'll be another 17 years and we'll be doing the book of Hebrews in this class. When we get there, you will understand that you cannot lose your salvation and using those verses that people use, especially Hebrews 6, 4, 5, and 6, right in that area, they have nothing to do with that particular issue. People have completely taken that out of context. Why? Because he is writing to the collective whole. Okay, that's an important thing to understand is who is being written to, who is being instructed, why is it being written there? Why is it placed there instead of here, and et cetera? And we've gone through the, uh, uh, we'll do this really quickly just so people understand it. The gospels, we won't get into the, who the gospels are structured to other than to say that the three synoptic gospels have zero to do with the church. If somebody is quoting something from the synoptic gospels that Jesus said and they apply it to the church age, you are going to have bad theology. That's all there is to it. You are going to have bad theology. You're going to have a contradiction in scripture. What did, it, does it say in Luke? It says, pray that you may, uh, uh, how does it say it? That you may stand before the Lord. Um, pray that you may be found worthy to stand before the Lord. Okay. When you read that verse and you apply it to the church, all of a sudden you think, well, I might not be worthy. You're not worthy. Christ is worthy and he has accepted you and therefore being in Christ is what makes you worthy. It's Christ in you that makes you worthy, not you by yourself. So using that verse will always cause a contradiction and people will have confused theology. And the same thing goes with no man knows the day and the hour. Listen, that has zero to do with the rapture of the church. He wasn't speaking of the rapture. He never alluded to it at all. John is different and there's a reason why. Go back and watch the early uh, Romans uh, uh, studies and I might have done it at the beginning of 1 Corinthians as well. The structure of the Bible shows you what is going on in redemptive history. John is a different type of gospel and there's a reason for it. Then you get to the book of Acts which begins where? But where? Where is the location? It's in, but where in Israel? Jerusalem, okay. And it starts going eventually, it gets out into the nations and it ends at Rome. Rome. That's right. And what is the first epistle? 
Romans. That's right, because Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And that goes all the way through. Paul's letters, every one of them is written to a group of Gentiles or an individual Gentile. All of them. Now, Timothy was half, right? He was, his uh, mother was a Jew and his father was a Greek. But they're all Gentile epistles, right up to Philemon. And then all of a sudden you get a letter, which is certainly written by Paul, but it's not addressed to the Gentiles any longer. It's addressed to the Hebrew people. Why? Because the Gentile-led church age has ended. These are end-of-days epistles, Hebrews, and then James, and then Peter. They're all addressed to the, the uh, Jews of the dispersion, the 12 tribes scattered abroad. It is written as a, a note to the end-of-days Jews, even though it was written to the early Jews. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that was the initial audience, but they rejected Christ. Now the picture of redemptive history is coming back into focus. So it begins in Rome. And then it ends, believe it or not, Paul writes the book of Hebrews. And the very last thing that we said today is he says, those in Italy greet you. And what's, what is it probably saying? It's saying that he has Italians and he's writing to his people in Rome. So Paul is finishing that off, and, but it's this kind of transitional thing, but it is to the Hebrews. And all of a sudden you get some more things to the, the Hebrew people. And then you have another set of kind of odd letters. It fits the gospel of John and that's one, two, and three John. And they fit the same pattern. And go back and watch it and you'll understand that. I'm not going to do it today. And then after that, you get one final warning. Jude. Jude is being written as a final warning to everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. And then you come into the book of Revelation and you have the same pattern follow again. The first three chapters are written to who? I don't care what hyper dispensationalists say. It's not what they say. It's written to the churches. That's right. And then all of a sudden in 4-1, what happens? Come up here picture of the rapture and everything from 4-2 until 19-10 is to Israel during the tribulation period, which is being pictured in all these sermons we've been going through and will go through, okay, all the way back in the law of Moses. It's showing us redemptive history. And then after that, Christ returns. And it says with his holy ones, it could be angels, but it ain't. It'll be his people coming back with him. And then we get into the millennium and then we get into the eternal state. So the Bible is showing us these patterns in advance so that we can know with all certainty that uh, uh, our theology is proper. And we don't need to worry about things like, what is, is it pre-trib? Is it mid-trib? Is it post-trib? Is it, you know, amillennial? What are all these views? How do we know which is correct? He's already showed us. He's already showed us in type and shadow in the Old Testament. And then he's given us the structure of redemptive history in the layout of the Bible itself. We don't need to argue those things. Those things are set. That's the smaller theological issues which we need to make sure that we have proper so that everything else comes out in the, the right manner. So 10-1, here we go again. Um, uh, these brethren gives, uh, did I say that? Where was I? But for, okay, many translators, I'll read this again, uh, state, but for or rather moreover to either show a contrast to his previous words or a continuation of the argument rather than a new direction. Whichever is intended, he is addressing brethren. The words are given to believers in the church for their edification and growth. Okay, to these brethren, he gives a phrase which is intended to open their minds to a passage of scripture in a new way. He says, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. As he continues, it will become, oh, I've already read that as well. I'm going to start with the last paragraph on this page. It is then a spiritual warning and admonition that will apply to those in the church. Yes, all were under the cloud. This was the sign of God's divine protection for the Israelites. The terminology was used, for example, by David. David wrote it in the 105th Psalm. Let me take you there really quickly. And 
105 and verse 39. It says, he spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light in the night. Okay, so that's what that's speaking of. Now, I said David there, and it does not ascribe it to David in the top of that. So uh, delete that from your memory bank because it may or may not be David unless it there are a couple Psalms that say in the New Testament, David wrote in this Psalm, and it doesn't have David's name on that Psalm in the Old Testament. But we know that David wrote it because the New Testament tells us that. So I, I don't want you to believe that I am right, and I'm going to make a note about that and recheck it. But I said by David in the 105th Psalm. Anyway, uh, but it does it is referred to in the Psalm itself. That all passed under the sea means that the entire body of Israel, along with the mixed multitude who went with them, marched through the waters of the Red Sea and to freedom from the bondage and oppression of Egypt. Life application, Paul shows us that the stories found in the Old Testament have been given for our instruction. In all, they will always point us to a stronger relationship with Christ if we will use them as they are intended. Not only that, there are spiritual applications and pictures of future redemptive history which can be gleaned from these stories. We've seen a couple of those in the, the uh, sermons that we've done. As you read the Old Testament, always ask yourself, how does this point to Christ? That's what we want to know. If you ask yourself that as you're typing your sermon or you're doing your study or whatever you're doing, inevitably you'll say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm beginning to see that because everything is about Christ. How do we know that? Burke, how do we know that? How do we know that everything in the Old Testament points to Christ? He was sleeping over there. It's hot in here. I know. It's hot in here. I'm sorry. Oh, you were looking at something. Okay. It does foreshadow what's going to happen later. It really does. Well, it does, but there's a way that we can absolutely know that that is correct. It's because it says here in um, John 5... 39. 39. Thank you. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. 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 Jesus. That's right. That's how we know. All you have to do is say, when I'm reading this book, I want to know how it points to Jesus. What was that? John 5? John 5.39. You know, he says um, uh, that Moses wrote about me. And he said, how can that be? It's just a bunch of stories about crazy things, right? People doing this and that. No. You just look at the sermons we've been doing. Every single sermon, something comes out that says, this is pointing to redemptive history. Either something that Jesus did personally or something that Jesus set up for the Jewish people so that it would lead back to him or whatever. Every single one of those stories, no matter how obscure it seems. What's his name? Joseph has a silver cup, right? He puts it into Benjamin's sack and then they go away with all of that has meaning. Every single word, even the word for grain. There's two words that were used for grain there. And unfortunately, translations only say grain, grain. But they're completely different words. One is shever and one is, um, uh, I can't remember it right now. Anyway, one of them means to break. One of them means something else. Why was that that way? Go back and watch the sermons. You'll understand exactly because everything is pointing to something that God wants us to know about Jesus. Let me read you something. I'll let you... Think about this well, before we if you go, go ahead. Verse that I'm looking for. I thought it was 15, 15, 14, but it's 15, 4. What are you talking about? What server was written earlier times was written for our instruction. That's right. That so that we, through uh, perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, might have hope. Everything, everything is for us. Everything is for us. Even if it doesn't apply directly to us, it is given for us. It's given for our instruction, our edification. I'm going to read you. 
number, this is in this week's sermon, Numbers 21, 14, and 15, and then I'm going to read you uh, another one down a little, and I want you, when you go home, if you think of it, find as many uh, copies of the Bible in your house as you can, and look at the different translations, and see if you can figure out, one, what's being said here, and two, which translation is proper. Okay, first from 2114, therefore it's said in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb in Sufa, the brooks of the Arnon, and the slope of the brooks that reaches to the dwelling of Ar and lies on the border of Moab. Now, I will tell you something that is coming up in Sunday's sermon. Adam Clark says the words of these offsets, these poems, are impenetri impenetrably obscure. In other words, there's no way we can find out what they mean. Okay? That's a defeatist attitude. I love Adam Clark, but he missed that one completely. Sunday, you'll find out what they mean, okay? And then the second one is from verse 17. Then Israel sang this song, spring up a well, all of you sing to it. The well the leaders sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves, okay? Those are two poems that I've read a million times, okay? I had no idea what they were talking about. Yeah, they're, Numbers 21, this, this coming sermon, okay? We'll talk about them and you'll understand why they're in there, what the Lord is trying to tell us, because he's always trying to tell us something. Always. He doesn't just arbitrarily put words in there that nobody can figure out, because if he did, then what would be the point of putting them in there? This is his word, and it is very limited in the amount of space that it has. There's only a certain number of, does anybody know how many chapters there are in the Bible? 1189 and she is correct she gets the prize most people will say 1188 because they've listened to that thing that's been sent out on youtube that says the very middle of the bible is psalm 108 verse 8 it is not okay that's impossible because there are 1189 chapters in scripture and that means that the middle one is an odd number not an even number does anybody know what the exact middle of the bible is Psalm 117. That's why I was just telling you. Psalm 118 is not. That's people have sent that out and they have sent that out for years and nobody ever checks that, but it is incorrect. There's the middle of the Bible is Psalm 117. Well, yeah, but Psalm 117 is guess what it is? It is the smallest chapter in the Bible. I think it's two verses in it. Yeah, it's and what who is it addressed to? The very middle of the Bible is, let's read it. Let's read it. It's very long. We'll be here all night, but okay, it's not. Here it is. We're going to read it right now. Just so you know, what is on God's mind? The very center of the Bible. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Gentiles, goyim, nations. Laud him, all you peoples, for his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Hallelujah, or praise the Lord. So there you go. That, that is the middle of the Bible. And then you have 1,189 chapters. In those 1,189 chapters, you've got a certain number of words that you can fit in. Okay? That's all you can do. You can't fit any more into there. And so the Lord spent all of that time. He spent over 1,600 years giving us this word. He is not going to put in something that is impenetrably obscure. He's not going to do that. At some point, okay. it will be. It, it, that's right. At some point, it will be revealed. Okay. And as we saw last week, we had Sergio do a, an acrostic check. And there were marvelous, marvelous things in last week's sermon that have never been seen in human history before. And he couldn't do the whole thing because he didn't have the time. But he got you a couple things to whet your appetite to check those things. Because acrostics, unlike Bible codes, cannot be fudged. 
they're clear text. It's just the first letter of each word. Y you can't fudge that, okay? If it says something, it says something. So anyway, um, we when we are reading this word, we are reading something that has real value. And God wants us to search it out. And he wants us to understand what he is trying to tell us. And if we can't, we need to pray about it. And we need to think on it. Because if he's giving us something here, it will relate to something somewhere else in this book. It will do it. Anyway, um, okay, so, uh, and what got me to think of that is exactly what it says here. They all passed through the sea. Means the entire body of Israel, along with the mixed multitude who went with them, marched through the waters of the Red Sea and to freedom from the bondage and oppression of Egypt. That's what got me thinking about this sermon, because guess what? One of those two poems that I just read you, and they're only two verses long each, one of them actually speaks about what I just said. So if you can figure it out, you can do Sunday sermon. I will let you do that, okay? Life application. Paul shows us that the stories found in the Old Testament have been given for our instruction. In all, they always point us to a stronger relationship with Christ. I've already read this. I know I did, but I'm going to read it again just because we need to start into the next verse. Um, with Christ, we will use them as they are intended. Not only there are there spiritual applications and pictures of future redemptive history, which can be gleaned from these stories, but as you read the Old Testament, you are to always ask yourself, how does this point to Christ Jesus? In doing this, you will be pursuing scripture as it was intended to be viewed. Yes, Brooke got it right. John 5, 39. 10-2, please. <laughs> they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul telling his readers at Corinth, you know what, I just thought something. Kara, I was I was not saying you. I was saying when you said the middle of the Bible and I said that was what I was just saying, I didn't mean to to say that you weren't wouldn't check the Bible. Okay. It's just something you saw, and when I said that I meant that in a general sense, not in a specific. So please I hope you didn't take it that way. Uh, there are verses, um, it depends, but there's about thirty-three thousand. Okay. Uh, th well, the reason why is because if you're going to use the Alexandrian text oh, instead oh, of the Byzantine oh. text, there will be a couple verse differences. And people argue over that. I'm not going to get into that argument today. You want to go through that, we can do another study on how we got the Bible and how we know it's reliable and how these things came into the Bible. These these few things that really don't match up. Okay, we can do that sometime. We've done it before. We can do it again. But I'm not going to do that tonight. But there are about 33,000 some verses in the Bible, I believe. I could be wrong in that, but I think that's right. Uh, words, I don't know. 426,937, I think. I made that up. I have no idea. No idea at all. Okay. Did you read 10 too? You want to read that again? Sure. No problem. They were all baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. Okay. Paul telling his readers at Corinth that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, now further explains this. In this exodus from Egypt, which took place under the conditions he mentioned, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, what they did is to be symbolically equated to what we have now done in Christ. The Israelites willingly followed Moses, thus accepting him as their spiritual leader. They subjected themselves to the laws and ordinances that he gave to them, and thus they were symbolically baptized as they were under the cloud and passing through the sea. The same preposition which is used for baptism in Matthew 28, 28 verse 19 is used by Paul here. In this, we can see that those who are baptized into Christ are acknowledging an acceptance of his spiritual leadership 
and the laws and ordinances which he prescribes for us. So much, once again, for hyper-dispensationalism, which says Gentiles are not to be baptized in this dispensation. That's absolutely crazy. One, it's a violation of the Lord's own words, and two, it does not fit the context of anything Christ says. I am really opposed to this, this teaching of hyper-dispensationalism because it leads many people down very, very bizarre paths. Anyway, the Old Testament is given in shadows and pictures of a greater reality found in Christ. God used little Israel for these pictures. We are brought out of Egypt, bondage to sin through the work of Christ. We are baptized into this work, meaning his fulfilling the law of Moses and into his death and resurrection. Thus, we are acknowledging his authority over us. It doesn't save us. Nobody ever says that. I don't know anybody other than the Church of Christ that says that baptism saves you. Okay? I don't know anybody. It is a picture of what the Lord did for us, and we are making a public proclamation by being baptized. Okay? And secondly, we are being obedient to the words of the Lord who gave us this word in the first place. So don't be led astray by people that act more pious and say, I didn't get baptized because it's a work and I don't need to work for salvation. That is nothing. And nobody argues that outside of the Church of Christ. You nobody. Baptize, get baptized to be saved. You get saved and then you profess your That's right. It's a public proclamation. Right. That's exactly right. We are baptized into this work, meaning his fulfilling of the law of Moses and into his death and resurrection. Thus, we are acknowledging his authority over us. Paul will continue with his thoughts and then show that external rights must be accompanied by a change in our hearts and lives. Okay? If they don't, and I will tell you this, if you are saved, you are saved. If you don't have a change in your life, and I know people will argue this, then it doesn't mean you're not saved. It means that you're being a very poor Christian. All right? And a lot of people get saved and they are strong for Christ and then they fall back into their old patterns. We are all human beings. We are all different. Every single one of us has our own needs, our own desires, our own failings. Okay, so to question somebody's salvation because they're not living for Christ is not a good thing to do if they have professed Christ. It's to say, you know, you're not living for Christ. It would be good for you to pull yourself back up and get back on track, you know. But to beat something over somebody's head is only going to chase them further away from what they should be in. Okay, I, now I understand Seth one time said in a sermon at uh, Grace Baptist, and he was right. He says, if somebody isn't living for Christ, then treat them like they are not saved at all. I have no problem with that. Evangelize them. Get them to think on Christ again. But if you know that they have made a profession for Christ and you say, you know what, you're just beating it over their heads, work with them. Get them back onto the right path. Okay, everybody has their own failings. Some of the greatest Christians have fallen. Okay. Life application, the wondrous stories of the Old Testament are all given for a purpose. When we read them, our eyes should be open to their fulfillment in Christ. Paul uses several examples, such as the Exodus from Egypt, to show us that this is the case. Can you think of another example that Paul uses to show us that Old Testament types and shadows point to New Testament truths? I'm thinking specific, specifically of the book of Galatians. He's very clear. Abraham... Sarah and Hagar. And he takes these stories, which are just stories. They don't seem to tell you anything about, you know, oh, we can find it bad. Abraham did something bad with his maid because he listened to his wife. And you can come up with all these moral applications, which have nothing to do with what God is trying to tell you. He specifically tells you. Let's go there really quickly before I finish that life application. Galatians chapter 3, I think it is. And he tells you. He's using one of these things to get us to say, oh, 
Well, if he's done it here, then God must have had a reason for all of these stories. The donkey speaking? Oh, don't get me started there. Okay, don't, Galatians what? I don't know. I've got to find it first. It says, I, it's probably three, but it says, um, uh, just as Abraham believed, it might be four, two. Anyway, Abraham by promise. Um, let's see here. Abraham, no longer I who live. And oh, here it is. It's um, four, um, 421. Tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman, who, whose name was anybody? Hagar, that's right. And the other by a free woman who was Sarah. Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. He just did what he did, not she was born, okay? And he of the free woman through promise. That wasn't normal. You're gonna have a son at the appointed time next year. That's not normal. Before it's even conceived, you're gonna have a son on this day, okay? So he goes on and he says, which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. He's making an application of two things that came out of a story of a wife that can't have children, a servant that could, and then all of the stories after that follow the same pattern. If you go watch the Genesis sermons, you'll understand what I'm talking about. It says two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. Who had it? The slave woman. She was in bondage, and guess what? He says, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. What does he mean, Mount Sinai in Arabia? Mount Sinai is where what was received? The law of Moses. He's saying that is bondage. That is bondage. The law is bondage, and that's what Jesus calls it. Okay, that's what the apostles call it in the book of Acts and all through the epistles. It's bondage. Okay, he says, which is now is and is in bondage with her children, meaning the Jewish people under the law. They're in bondage. Okay, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. And for it is written, rejoice, O barren woman, speaking of Sarah, you who do not bear, Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate, meaning Sarah, has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. Okay? You see? Everything is giving in typology so that we can say, bye, Fred, I have a great week. All right. It's all, oh, we'll go down, we'll finish that because we're still in it. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, which is recorded later at um, uh, Isaac's weaning. Remember that? Okay. Go watch the sermon if you want to understand it. Uh, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bond woman and her son. It's saying, get rid of the law. Get rid of it. All right, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Okay, Israel cannot be right with God until they get rid of the law. They are cast out. That doesn't mean that Israel is cast out completely. They will be brought in. If you don't believe me, go read Zechariah chapter 12 right through 13.1 and you'll see that. Oh, maybe you'll see it Sunday. Okay, so then brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman meaning the law, meaning the bondage of the law, Hagar, Mount Sinai, we are children of the free. Christ, the grace of Christ, he fulfilled the law. He cast off the shackles of the law, okay? That's what that is referring to. It's all given in typology so that when it happens, we can say, oh, I get it, okay? 
uh, finish our life application. Paul uses several examples, such as the exodus from Egypt, to show us this is the case. Therefore, always consider this and ask the Bible questions about the meaning of passages as you read them. It will answer back with beauty and with treasure. Baptism without any change in one's heart has no significance, no meaning at all. It should indicate a life, changed life, and a fresh start. And it should only come after a person on Jesus does call. So much for infant baptism. Abraham first believed the promises of God. Then he was counted as righteous in God's sight. Only afterwards, when he was circumcised in the life he did trod, he already had shown that his heart was right. Baptism then is a sign for the believer, for the one who is first on the Lord Jesus called. Go, get dunked after being a receiver of the Holy Spirit who in Christ you he installed. Okay, 10-3, please. Was that Hebrew, that dunk? Uh, yeah, dunk, that's a Hebrew word. Yeah, it means to eat swarma until you're full. Okay. They all ate the same, they all ate the same spiritual food. Thank you. It's a long one, I know. Wow. Not only were those brought out at the Exodus, baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, but they also ate the same spiritual food. Again, Paul is showing that the food which sustained Israel is symbolic of the true spiritual food which we participate in when we receive the Lord's Supper. Exodus chapter 16 shows the first details concerning the giving of the manna. Manna means, does anybody remember what it means? What is it? What is it? Exactly. What is it? They see it. What is it? Manna. There is even a description of it as is recorded in Exodus 16. Let me take you there really quick. It's in Exodus 16, then it's described again in Numbers. But, but uh, yeah, that, exactly. Exodus 16, um, 31, and the house of Israel called it its name manna. And it was like white, exactly. Coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Oh, yes. Great. What's that? Graham cracker. Yeah, graham cracker. You want to know something about honey? I have had a beehive at the house now over a year. The guy came and brought it back, and he, he got, yeah, I, I, we've always had it, and we got it back, okay, because he had to recolonize it. He brought it back. It's been there over a year, and he came today, two days ago, to get us honey, okay? Came to get us honey. So he showed up. It's in the evening, and he got out his fire thing, and he got the bees all calmed down. And he opened it up, and there was not one drop of really? honey. After a whole year, he he had the wrong he had the wrong bees in there, and so he had to make a new colony. So we're we're starting a new adventure. Um, but guess what happened last night? I woke up this morning, and there it was sitting next to me. Is I, I I somebody you and I know her. Somebody sent me honey from Florida because I was sick on Sunday during the update. And they said, this will help you feel better. And I thought, I said, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Isn't that something? Because we were going to have all this honey and I was going to be sending it to people. Instead, it had to be sent to me. We got zero honey. So what do they do with the old bees? I have no idea. I Listen, I just have the hive. I don't get into dealing with them. I'm not. You know what? The only thing we got out of that hive over the past year is four bit dog paws they come leaping in and they're whining oh, oh that's all we got out of it oh boy oh, yeah. yeah no it was terrible oh i was i was waiting for that honey what they're all honeybees but they have to have the right mixture they've got to have a queen and a certain whatever i don't know don't ask me because i don't know all i wanted was the honey okay so anyway we'll go on from there um we just read what uh 10 3 
Oh, we read Exodus 13, uh, coriander seed, wafers with honey. That's what got me onto that. Okay, the spirit. One more thing I'm going to get into. You know what? Um, somebody, he never posts. I, I've been posting Hebrews 303 days, and some people post every day. Linda's always there, oh, amen, or thank you, Lord, or whatever. And, and you know, one guy today at the very last commentary on Hebrews on Facebook, Tom Howard, he said, Charlie, thank you for this study. I've read every single one of them every single day. I, that just, that made my day. I got, I don't know if he listens to the Bible studies, but that literally made my day. I haven't commented on yet because I wait until the next morning when I post a new one, but that made my day that he had been reading those every single day. Boy, I, I, and I'll let him know that tomorrow. That was just, that was it for me. Oh, somebody wants to know the word of God. I, oh, gee, the spiritual food continued to sustain them for the entire time in their wilderness wanderings from the time they left Egypt and the manna started in Exodus 16 until Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. They went over the, let's go there really quickly so you don't think I'm making that up. And I could be wrong too, so we want to make sure. But Joshua chapter, that's Judges, got to get in the right book there, Charlie. Joshua, and I'm going to go to 5 because I'm confident, but we'll see here. Um Joshua chapter, let's see here. Um, uh, yeah, here it is. Joshua 5, 12. We'll go to 10 first. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day, verse 12. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten of the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Marvelous stuff. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, you know what? Oh, yeah. Spiritual food continued to sustain them. I had it written right here and I didn't, I got ahead of myself. Hang on. Time of the wilderness wanderings. Once Israel crossed the Jordan, we read this in Joshua chapter five. All I had to do is go a couple more words and I would have seen that, but I do that all the time. My brain is uh, goofy. I got and it highlighted. You got it highlighted. The giving of the manna was never forgotten by the people of Israel, and it is referred to at various times in both testaments of the Bible. Even the Psalms, while recounting the wondrous deeds of God, remembered the manna which sustained Israel in Psalm 78, which says, we'll take you there very quickly, and that's verse 24. It says, um, he rained down manna on them and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels food, he sent them food to the full. And we saw last week in the uh, bronze serpent that the manna meant nothing to them. They completely rejected Christ, the bread and the water, and they complained. So there you go. But like all things of this nature, the physical reality of the manna pictured a spiritual truth. Where is that mentioned? Is that where Jesus said? Yes, John Your chapter six. Ate man in the desert. But That's right. I am the bread come down from heaven, and the Jews said. <laughs> That's right. Our fathers ate the man in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread to eat from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Very good. He got it. John All right. Man. John chapter 6. Six. Yeah. The man only anticipated the greater and true bread from heaven, which is the body of the Lord Jesus. 
This then is what is pictured in the taking of communion or the Lord's Supper. It is a remembrance of the work of Christ, looking back on his cross until he comes again. Now, just because we say this from time to time on Sundays, but some people that watch the Bible studies may not watch the Sunday sermons, or even if they do, they may not watch the Lord's Supper when we take it. And so I might as well say it right now. There are a few different views on, let me read the life application and then I'll do these for you. I'll do them up here so people can write them down. Life application, taking communion at church has no meaning unless one has received Christ as Lord. It has zero meaning. Only when the heart is directed towards Christ does the meal take on any true significance. When you receive the elements, it should be done with a humble and grateful heart for the wondrous blessing of being included in the body of Christ. Okay, we'll do this really quickly, just so people know what's going on here. I'm not going to get into the whole thing, but I just want people to kind of know the differences between these things, because, you know, like I say, we do, I, I explained this on the uh uh, Lord's Supper from time to time. What are the four major views? I, I don't care. There's 15,000 views on everything. What are the four major views on the Lord's Supper? The first one is, right, it's the Roman Catholic view. It's called trans substantiation. Stan, stan, ciation, ciation, substantiation. Yeah, anyway, substantial. Okay, yeah. Okay, what's the next one? Con. Con. Sub. Stan. He's a nice guy, isn't he? That's Stan. Stan. C. A. Ditto, Mark. Done. I was just thinking of thing. What's that? Do the ditto marks ditto, instead. Ditto marks. <laughs> oh, yeah, ditto marks. Okay, then the next one is... Calvin. This is Luther. This is RCC. This is Calvin. Which is Calvin and Hobbes. What a great, that was wonderful, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Spiritually, spiritually present. And what's the last one? <laughs> the re the, yeah, the real one. Symbolic. Okay, just so you know, yeah, we're going to say the real one. I'll have to remember from that from now on out, I'll be thinking of the doctor every time I do the last one, the real one. Okay, transubstantiation. This is literally the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. It literally becomes that when you take it and you eat it, you are eating the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. It's re-crucifying Christ all over again. It is a bloody reenactment of the Lord's Supper. It doesn't matter that you can put it under a microscope and there's no such thing. They, they, that's what they teach. It transubstantiation. It becomes the literal, what? They've been out of work 2,000 years. They've been out of work for a long, that's right. The next one. They take the blood. Right. Yeah, they, that's what they say, that you're taking the blood. And they, they say that because- People sitting in the pews, his body. That's right. It's the body and the blood. They say it's literal, but it's yeah, not. It's okay, don't don't get into a long thing on it. Let's keep it simple, because they can't hear you speaking. Okay, they can't hear you guys speaking, and so it. Next one is consubstantiation. Okay, I'm going to give you an example. This is a metal bowl. Okay, that's a metal bowl, and we've got something down here. These are logs. Okay. A bowl. That's fire. Okay. So what happens to this bowl when the fire is on it? It's hot. It gets hot. So Christ is in the elements like 
the heat is in the metal. Okay. It's not really, he didn't want to get too far away from them and be burned as a heretic. So he came up with this, which is really goofy. Christ is in the elements like fire is in metal. Okay. The heat is in the metal. It, it, it doesn't mean anything, but that's what Lutherans believe. Okay. Then you get the Calvin. He's, Christ becomes spiritually present. When we take the Lord's Supper, Christ is with us. He's spiritually present with us. Everybody got that? Okay. How do we know that's wrong? Yeah, that's right. He's always with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even Jesus said under the old covenant when he was speaking to Israel, he said, when you pray, go into the closet, close the door, right? He's there. He's listening. Christ is everywhere. Okay. If, if it's spiritually present, then that means he's not with you the rest of the time when I'm driving down the road and I'm praying or I'm talking. I have to have the elements and I have to have a bunch of you around me. So that's what okay. Calvin that's what Calvin believes. The real one is symbolic. How do we know that? Give me one verse very quickly. That, often as you do, do it and remember to speak. Okay. That's, they all use that. That's in the Bible. There's one verse in the Lord's Supper that they give. And it answers the question. He says, this... In this is my body. my body and my blood. What did he have in his hand when he said that? A loaf of bread, a loaf of bread and a cup of wine. You don't sense. need to go any further than that. He is saying this is symbolic. He's not saying this is my body and my blood. He's saying it's symbolic. Okay. So I have people from time to time that start watching the uh, the uh, streaming online. Oh, I like this sermon, blah, blah, blah. And we get to the Lord's Supper and they flip out and they say, he said the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus to every person that walks up there. And they don't like that. They say, what is he, a Catholic? People take things to way crazy extremes. I mean, way crazy extremes. Nobody would even think that under any normal circumstances, but then they tune out and they never watch again because they see the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus, which is exactly what it says to say. Right. Okay, right. Carol, you had something. Yes, it's so simple for me. It's a, it's a metaphor. That's exactly what he's got in his hand, and he's saying that this is it. That's right. I am the fruit, and I am the vine. I am this. I am that. I am. That's right. And he's not a door. We don't go and get a knob and pull it open. And oh, gee, that's Jesus there. That it, it, he's obviously not speaking in those terms. But those are your four views, just so you're aware of that. Okay. Um, ten four. We have time for ten four. Go ahead. And drink the same spiritual drink. For they all drank from the spiritual rock that the accompany that that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Okay, once again, was that rock sitting right there literally Christ? No, no. he was saying that it was spiritually Christ. Every single thing. the rod. Remember holding up the rod in Exodus 17, and he's holding it up. Moses is sitting on the rock. The banner, every single thing, everything in that, every single, Aaron was Christ, and uh, Hur on the other side of him was Christ, and Moses was picturing Christ, he who draws out, the rod is, everything pictured Christ in that particular sermon, and none of them were Christ, right. they were pictures of Christ, okay, of who he is, of what he represents to us, so people need to take things, they need to get less stressed about things, you know, people get way too, and I do too, don't get me wrong, I get way stressed over things. I'm an A-type personality, and anybody that knows me, my brother's back there. He knows for sure. If these guys know a little bit, he knows a lot. Okay, mom's not here. Is she all right? Boy, the two sons failed today, I'll tell you that. Okay, well, 10-4, go ahead, read it. Oh, you did. Okay. So far in just three verses, Paul has shown the great amount of spiritual connection between the Exodus 
and wilderness wanderings and their correlation to Christ. He has shown that the cloud and the sea pictured being baptized into Moses, meaning the law given by the Lord. He also has shown that the manna they ate was spiritual food. Now he shows that even the water they drank was a spiritual picture of Christ because they all drank the same spiritual drink. One cannot live long without water. I can absolutely assure you of that. Okay, you can live a lot less long without air, but you still need water. Okay, God intended this to show us just as we cannot live without water, so we cannot live without being spiritually connected to him through Christ. He took all of these things and you go through the Bible and you read of something and it makes a picture. Every single time that is used again in the Bible, it will make that picture. It may, may make a second or a third picture as well, like the water is the word, okay? But it will always make the same spiritual application. Water, we need water to live. Uh, it, it, it's just God is taking these things because he created them. He put these people in this hot, barren land for a purpose. When you walk in Israel, there are thorns everywhere everywhere you go there are thorn bushes i don't it is the thorniest place on this planet okay did you wear shoes there huh did you wear shoes there? you know what i'm just not smart enough sometimes okay um so here we go um well that was um anyway um now uh, yeah okay same spiritual drink i've said that okay connect okay we are either dead in sin and trespasses having inherited adam's fallen nature or we are born again through Christ. To show us that this was pictured in the Exodus account, he says, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The people of Israel twice drank directly from water which issued from a rock. The first was in Exodus 17, 1 through 6, in a place called Rephidim, meaning resting places, <coughs> which was their 11th stop while traveling. The second is recorded in Numbers 20, 1 through 11. We just did that a couple weeks ago. Marvelous, marvelous pictures of Christ at a place called Kadesh, meaning holy. This was their 33rd recorded stop. After they received the water, the places were renamed Meribah, which means strife or contention, because the people strived with the Lord over the water. Paul says that in these places, they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them. There is a Jewish tradition that the rock literally followed them wherever they went. This is not the intent of Paul's words. Rather, the idea of following them is that wherever they were, Christ was present. They contended with the Lord, claiming that he had left them to die. But then the Lord, through Moses, showed them that he was always there, ready to provide. This is the intent of saying that the rock followed them okay he never left them without water they would get thirsty and they say well we don't have water hey he provided the water he provided the manna they said we don't have any food and then the food it is said that it never stopped from the time that it started in exodus 16 all the way to joshua 5 it was there they just rejected those things because they rejected him Okay, you'd have to ask mom. Go back. I went to Israel with her when in 2003, and, know and she would know if I did or not. I was so sick when I got on that airplane in New York, and for the next three or four days, I don't even remember being there. It was just, oh, it was horrible. Anyway, by the time it was over, I was fine. But boy, that was just. I ate fish the night before. And I don't even like fish, but I ate fish over, and ah. Oh, it was horrible. I'm telling you what. You definitely wore shoes. If you're eating yeah. fish, you're wearing shoes. Uh, well, anyway, it, it was just bad from oh, the beginning. Either of those things. Okay, so let's see here. We got to go on. We're almost done, and we got a couple more minutes. Uh, this rock is then said explicitly to be Christ by Paul. 
In other words, the natural rock is merely a metaphor, which is then left completely out of the true picture. If there was one rock in Rephidim and one rock in Kadesh and both gave water, then the rock is a picture of Christ. If this is so, then it isn't just the rock either, but the water which issued from the rock, which is also the intended symbol. As it says, they drank of that spiritual rock. Understanding this, the rest of the Bible in both Testaments uses the terms rock and water to describe the Lord. We're going to see a couple more of them coming up. The rock is the unmovable foundation upon our which our faith is grounded, such as in the parable of building one's house upon the rock in Matthew chapter 7. The water is the water of life, as seen in John 4, John 7, Revelation 22, and elsewhere. The account from John 4 is both memorable and it is explicit. So really quickly, I'll take you there and read you that verse. Is John chapter 4. Um, let's see here. We want verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Life application. When reading the Bible, one should attempt to remember things that are mentioned and see if later comparisons are made. Rocks, water, harvesters, the wind, trees, numbers, milk, types of grain, different types of work, and on and on and on. All of them have meaning and nothing is arbitrary. Each will give us insights into Christ, into God's plan of redemptive history, and teach us moral lessons as well. Nothing is superfluous and nothing is left out. The Bible is an amazingly beautiful compilation of words which all form to show us God's love for us. And it is all centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Wonderful stuff. I also... Uh, it was in abundance. It fed three to five million people and all the cows. All the cows, all the animals else. had enough. You know, it had to fill up those waddies for those cows Absolutely. to drink. Absolutely. <laughs> cows can drink a whole lot of water. That's a fact. So I, I tell you, I got eight chihuahuas and Fatso, my biggest one, he's big this way, not big. He's not a big dog, but he's big. He can drink a bowl by himself. I mean, in a pool. Yeah, it is good for him. Flushes out his fatso kidneys. Anyway, um, Pat also, she didn't come tonight, and so it could be she's still sick. She was sick here on Sunday. Yes, she was. And uh, yeah. so we'll also add her into our final prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence, and we thank you for this really wonderfully precious word. Oh, God, it is just like, it's like the water to our soul. It refreshes us. It gives us hope because it tells of you. It tells of the glory that lies ahead, even though we're living in this horribly difficult world with all kinds of problems that surround us. I mean, and it's not just this day and age. David had his own problems as he faced enemies from every side and enemies from within, even from within himself. And Lord, we're facing the exact same things in our lives here. And we just have uh, a lot of spiritual uh, negative negativity which is going on in this world. It's just almost debilitating, Lord. And we would pray that you would help us to rise above these things and to just keep our eyes fixed on you. Give us that strength, Lord, and give us that wisdom that we will do so and not be taken in by the things of this horrible world. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all you've done for us. And we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, let me back this up here. You've got to turn around and wait until it back home. <laughs>